You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. All right, if you guys want to open up your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, could you lift up your hand and we will uh, have someone pass out a Bible to you. I want to make sure everybody has the word in front of them this morning. Don't be ashamed. And uh, once you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, why don't we go ahead and stand? We're going to read chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 2. So get you a little stretched out today before we get into the Word. Chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their heart, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice this, uh, you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring for yourselves up wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. 
eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest in the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of Gentiles is blas- for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And Lord, today as we come to your word, Lord, we lay down ourselves, Lord. We want to set aside our just presuppositions, Lord. We want to set aside our biases. Lord, we just come today and and invite you in to convict us and show us our sin as we're reading that you will be the judge of the living and the dead and you will bring to light the secret things in the heart and judge us according to them. And so, Lord, we just pray today that you would just show us all that we've done, Lord, all the sins that we've been involved in and all of the sins that we don't even realize we're doing. Lord, that by the power of your spirit, we would be convicted, Lord, and we would be saved. Lord, today, would you show us our guilt Would you show us our fallen state? And also by grace today, would you save us from that guilt? Would you save us from the judgment to come? Would you redeem us by your precious, spotless blood that you shed 2,000 years ago on the cross? Lord, teach us, but do more than teach us today. Preach to us and bring about repentance in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Was that too long for you guys? I heard some knees shaking out there. People Magazine once polled their subscribers 
and surveyed different attitudes towards sins. The readers would quantify how guilty they would feel after committing various acts. These numbers were all tabulated and each sin was given what People Magazine called a sin coefficient or what we might call a syndex, right? If you gave yourself a one, you would be blameless, but if you gave yourself a 10, you were guilty to the max. Murder was really thought of the worst of all sins. Uh, the readers gave themselves or gave it a syndex of 9.84. Rape was next at 9.77. Then were the, the more sinister sins. Child abuse was at 9.59. Drug dealing was at 8.83. Embezzlement was at 8.49. Adultery was 7.63. Then you had the sins at the other end of the sin spectrum. Sins that people, that some of us kind of view as benign sins or sins that we just kind of gloss over. Selfishness was a 4.92. Gossip, 4.1. Jealousy, 4.08. And lusts in the heart, 3.65. According to People Magazine, the vices and the violence deserved the higher syndex, where sins of the heart came in with a lower number. But here is we're in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Specifically here in chapter 2, Paul tells us that God's view of sin and the readers of People Magazine view of sin, you and me, are quite different. We and God have different syndexes. As we've studied in depth chapter 1, we've read about the hideous heathen. Just this list of all kinds of blatant, outright, disgusting sins. And as that list is read, we tisk tisk and we shudder and we approve at the condemnation that Paul gives towards the list of 23 sins towards the end of chapter 1. And we left that Sunday feeling a little bit smug, feeling a little bit prideful and morally superior but here in chapter two the religious person the one that seems to have had morality bred into them through family heritage within the church the jewish person we we get a little bit morally snobbish and yet paul really puts us in our place in chapter two showing us really that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god he'll get to in chapter three but that none are without excuse. None will escape the righteous judgment of God. In the book of Romans, God plays the judge and Paul plays the prosecuting attorney or the DA, proving to us that the heathen are guilty in chapter one, the Hebrew is guilty in chapter two, and really all are guilty in chapter three, fallen short of God's righteous standards. Last week, we began to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is as far as we got, but we've examined the righteous judgment of God thus far in the text. Verse 1, we see that man is without excuse. Even the, the man who feels he's morally right. You know, in verse 1, he says that you condemn yourself when you judge because you're actually practicing the same things. But man is without excuse. The seed of sin and the deed of sin are all the same. 
In verse 2, we see that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's inescapable in verse 3. That by God's goodness, His kindness, and His patience, some men will escape the judgment of God and won't perish, but will be brought to repentance. Verse 5, we see that the judgment of God is wrathful and also that it is righteous. Verse 6, we saw that the judgment of God is according to deeds. And verse 7 tells us about those deeds, that the judgment of God is eternal life for those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for themselves glory and honor and immortality. We got into that uh, a little bit last week. But the temptation is to think that Paul is saying that those who are good go to heaven. Are you going to heaven? Yes, I'm going to heaven. And why do you say that? Because I'm a good person. And we would have the temptation to think that those who are bad are going to hell. But the context of Romans actually speaks against that. Paul is not saying that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. But rather, he's saying that those who worship and glorify and honor God, having been redeemed by God, are just obviously saved. These verses, verses 7 through 10 that we'll get in depth, uh, are not teaching salvation by works. In chapter 3, verse 20, we read that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. We all know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 9, that it's by grace a free gift that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. God judges according to deeds, and yet justification, that event in the heavens where we are declared righteous before God, is by faith alone. Justification by faith. And then we are given by God a faith that works. The question is asked, are we right by good works and by fulfilling a moral standard or are we justified by what Jesus has done for us and that alone? And Paul just proclaims it from the rooftops that we're not justified by our deeds but only by believing in the deeds that Jesus has done for us. The main issue in these verses is not how a person gets to heaven, but rather what the visible outward marks of are of those who are going to heaven and of those who are not. The emphasis here is really on fruit. The fruit of a Christian's life and the fruit of a non-Christian's life. Jesus told his disciples they could know where a person was spiritually by the fruit that their lives produced. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15. And James tells us that faith without works is dead. John Calvin said that faith alone saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. We're justified by faith. But our works show that we have faith. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands and there's none who seeks after God. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
We're shown here in verses 7 through 10 the unrealizable condition for salvation apart from Jesus. Nobody has this patient continuance of doing good. Nobody has that in and of themselves, seeking for themselves glory and honor and immortality. But those who have been saved will be rewarded with glory and honor and peace, verse 10 tells us. Justification by faith alone is actually the very cause of our good works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and our faith is confirmed by the works that he produces in our lives. He gives us the grace to live out good works. Charles Hodge, who lived back in the 1800s, was a guy that even Spurgeon read. He was kind of Spurgeon's predecessor. Spurgeon actually said, we'd all be better people if we'd read more Hodge. And Charles Hodge said this, the wicked will be punished on account of and according to their works. The righteous will be rewarded not on account of, but according to their works. Good works are to them the evidence of belonging to Christ. In the same place, the apostle is not teaching the method of justification, but is laying down the general principles of justice. Paul's not talking justification here. He's talking justice. He's talking the judgment of God, the rewarding for, uh, of glory and honor and immortality. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. But whenever Paul mentions God's saving power, he immediately, immediately references his link to human responsibility, which means we need to take heed to what the word of God says. That if our faith is genuine, if your faith is genuine, good works will be seen in your life. You've all heard uh, the saying that if you were accused of being a Christian and you were brought into court, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, it's all it's kind of a little bit cheesy, but it actually proves the point. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian if you were drugged before officials? God is sovereign. But we are also responsible. The Holy Spirit will produce in the believer a patient continuance in doing good. And the reward is worshiping the Lord. Glory, honor, and immortality. I want you to examine your life right now. Yours and yours alone. Do you see in yourself a patient continuance in doing good? Verse 8 says, but to those that are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's indignation and wrath. This self-seeking, the King James Version says, it's a contentious and it's a strife. Always about your life, there's this selfishness. Philippians chapter 2 says, that's not the mark of a Christian, shouldn't be the mark of a Christian. This self-seeking, but rather should be seeking the glory of the Lord, it should be seeking the betterment of others. And we see that indignation and wrath, you might underline those words, indignation and wrath are upon those who seek their own, seek their selfish passions. The word indignation means passionate wrath. And it literally speaks as if breathing hard. Can you picture on that day when God judges the world in passionate wrath? 
and the Greek language refers to it as if he were breathing hard in his judgment. <sighs> Hatred towards sin. Wrath against those who've resisted the constant beckoning of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what, it's not something that I want to be a part of. It's not a place that I want to be found under God's indignation or his violent passion. Now, indignation and wrath are, are these words that are personal in nature. It's actually something that God is experiencing while pouring out judgment on you Christ rejectors. And then the next verse, verse 9, goes on to say tribulation and anguish. And this is actually what you are experiencing when you get the wrath. God is experiencing indignation and wrath. You will be experiencing tribulation, which speaks of a, a pressured trouble. And you'll be experiencing anguish. Anguish literally speaks of the narrowness of a room and calamity upon you. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That self-seeker. That one that won't obey the truth. But as Romans 1.18 says, the one that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Very sobering passages, verses 9 and 10. Excuse me, verses 8 and 9. Sobering. That God would be going through indignation and wrath against you. And that you would be receiving tribulation and anguish from him. Sobering passages. 7 and 10 correlate. 8 and 9 correlate. 7 and 10 speak of this reward to the one who's justified by faith in Christ. And verse 10, there's this glory and there's this honor and there's this peace on everyone who works what is good. Remember that working what is good, it's the fruit of a saved life. It's the fruit of a spirit in a person. If you're a Jewish person who's full of the Holy Spirit, you're a Messianic Jew. Paul says, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for the Gentile who's been justified by faith in Christ, who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, there's peace upon that person. Examine yourself right now. How's the peace in your life? Do you have rest, prosperity, quietness, assurance? You know, God himself is actually the ultimate reward. He's that source of, of infinite joy. But if you reject the truth, the reward is infinite horror, the indignation of God upon yourself. You know, all the things that we enjoy in life are kind of these tainted signs that point to God's good nature towards us, his good care towards us. Whatever it is that you enjoy, you know, the books, the movies, the beach, the museum, the bowling, you know, all of these good things just point towards God who is so good towards us. Giving us richly all things to enjoy that we could just have this foreshadowing of this glory and this honor, this immortality, this peace, this 
time in the presence of the source of all joy, Jesus Christ himself. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Surprised by Joy, he said, all good things I enjoyed, like Renaissance literature, I know that really speaks to a lot of you here, were markers to point me to joy in God, and yet I embraced the marker itself. Kind of goes back to that Romans 1, you know, we exchange the worship of the creator uh, for that of the creature. And, you know, we like the sun and we enjoy the sun, but people go towards worshiping the sun. You look at the new heaven and the earth, there's no sun. The lamb is its light. The glory of God lights the place because he has been that which we will always enjoy. And yet the opposite is true as well. Hell, the indignation, the wrath, the torment, the tribulation, the anguish is so horrible to show us how awesome God is. All good things in life point towards how awesome God is. And hell being so horrible shows us just that exact opposite of what God is. As John Piper said, whatever else this text teaches, verses 7 through 10, whatever else, these, this, this heaven and this hell, whatever else it teaches, it teaches many things, but one thing is abundantly clear and immeasurably important for us and for our mission in this modern secular world. Namely, when your life is over on this earth and this present age is over on this planet, God will give you either eternal life or wrath and indignation. You will receive either glory and honor and peace or you will receive tribulation and distress. Heaven or hell awaits you when you die, and both will last forever. What could be more important, or more relevant, or more urgent, or more immense, or more captivating than your happiness or misery for all eternity? And I really pray, just this morning as I just woke up early and was just praying over the text and reading of the judgment of God, just really praying that God would strike into us the reality of the judgment that is coming. A purifying judgment to those who believe in Christ, you will be judged, Christian. Not a judgment of indignation, but a judgment of purification. Still a judgment. Or those of you that have been rejecting the call of the Holy Spirit to turn to repentance. Hell. Hell awaits you. And what in the world could be more important in your life than figuring out the heaven thing and figuring out the hell thing? Who goes to hell? Who goes to heaven? Verses 7 through 10 tell us the infinite horrors of hell are intended by God to be a vivid demonstration of the infinite value of the glory of God. You don't worship God, but you worship the created thing. The offense is punishable justly by hell. The biblical assumption of the justice of hell is a clear testimony of the infiniteness of the sin of falling short of the glory of God. The righteous have a reward, 
and the unrighteous have a reward. And what is the righteous reward? Snowboarding in heaven for all eternity? You know, having this mansion in the New Jerusalem that's like, you know, the size of Long Island, you know, or whatever. You know, what is our reward? Our reward is God. He is our reward. Exclamation, exclamation. <laughs> He's our reward. Genesis 15.1, when God first reaches out to Abraham, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your, anybody know it? Exceedingly great reward. He is our reward. And if you're not satisfied with that, if that's just not enough for you, man, you need to do some heart searching. You need to get away and spend some time with God because he's the reward. And if anything else, you want it to be the reward, it's a God. You're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. He is our reward. And he gives us everlasting life, fellowshipping with him in Christ. A possession of this peace, verse 10 tells us, it passes all understanding, gives us joy inexpressible, full of glory. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul tells us that this reward is worth losing everything we've ever had. Knowing Jesus, this excellency, Paul says, of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I've counted or I've suffered the loss of all things. We see here that God judges everyone. As you look at verse 11, there's no partiality with God. Whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek, it's a universal judgment. And there's only these two fates we've read of. Those who inherit eternal life and those who inherit eternal suffering, indignation, and sorrow for all eternity. And the Bible teaches this without blushing. And we kind of want to water it down a little bit. Oh, you know. We teach, you know, universalism, you know, which is a damnable doctrine. We teach that, oh, everyone will just eventually kind of get saved. It doesn't really matter. But the Bible says no. There are, there's a fork in the road. There are two paths off the road. One will go to eternal damnation, and one will go to eternal paradise in heaven with God. There's a universal judgment. There's no partiality in God with his judgment. Verse 6 says that the judgment is upon every man. Verse 9 says it's upon every soul. And verse 10 says it's upon every man. No partiality. Jew or Greek. Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're the Pope or the President. God doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care about your, your status in the community. His judgment is impartial. No partiality. His judgment is universal, personal, and impartial. You want to know the good news? So is the gospel. The gospel is universal. The gospel is personal. And the gospel is impartial. Universal for every nation. Look at Revelation. And what do you see making up the kingdom? People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Boggles our mind, doesn't it? We don't even know all the countries. You know, we don't even know all the, the tribes. We don't even know all the dialects. 
all the customs. But out there, there are those that will be saved out of every tribe. You know, a universal salvation, not universalism. (laughs) You know, it's a small world, the Disneyland ride tells us. It's a small world after all. My sister just went to Disneyland and her ride got stuck at the end of It's a Small World. The music played for 20 minutes. People began to go insane until they finally shut the music off, turned the lights on, and just kind of waited there. And, you know, it kind of lost its magic there on my sister and her friends. You know, to the Lord, it's a small world after all. And he's on his mission to get the gospel out. It's personal gospel. You specifically must receive it as an individual. Not be part of a nation that has received the gospel. Not part of a quote-unquote Christian nation. It's to on and on all who believe. Every person who believes. A personal salvation. A personal gospel. An impartial gospel. Romans 3.22 To all and on all who believe There's no difference. Have you believed? Have you exercised faith in Christ? And has that faith in Christ been evidenced by a patient continuance in doing good? When you read Galatians chapter 5, do you see the works of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace. Seriously, do you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Man, we had an awesome home group on Wednesday night. So we just opened it up for a time of confession and repentance among husbands and wives. And you know, we're like, we've been yelling at our kids. You know, I'm so angry. I'm selfish. Yes, you are. You know, just, just confessing our sin. Confessing just evidence of the old man that's still in us. We read Colossians chapter 3, we're like, the old man. Why? It seems like I'm putting on, you know, the, the hip waiter of the old man, you know. It's just causing me to be slow. It's weighing me down. Man, let's put off the old man. Let's put on the new man. Let's dwell rich, or let's be in the word and let the word of Christ dwell richly in us in all wisdom. Let's teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's Operate in the spirit. But what marks your life? When you read Galatians chapter 5, is it the works of the flesh that are the evidence? The works of self-seeking that will end in the indignation and wrath of God. We see just this series of comparing and contrasting beginning in verse 11 and going through verse Uh, 29. 
this comparing and contrasting, or really this, this verses, this battle that goes on. Verses 11 through 16, there's this battle, you know, uh, or, or this comparison between the, the Jew and the Greek. Verse 12 tells us, For as many as have sinned without the law, these shall perish without, without the law. And as many as have sinned with the law, they will be judged by the law. And so you have this with the law versus without the law. Paul shows us that we're all sinners. You know, we all ask, what about the people in the deepest jungle or on the highest mountain who've never heard the gospel? Who've never had the Ten Commandments placed in their hands? I mean, how do they know what they're supposed to do? And the judgment of God is right. And you're judged according to what you have. And those that are out there on the highest mountain or out in the farthest desert, they will be judged and perish without the law. Those who have the law and sin with the law, they'll be judged by the law. God has written the law in people's hearts, in their conscience, within their thoughts. And even if they've sinned without the written Mosaic law, they will be judged by their conscience. Verse 14 will show us that. Verse 13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in God's sight, but the doers of the law. So not only do you have this uh, with the law versus without the law, but you have this hearer versus doer. Paul is playing pin the tail on the Jew right now. It's those that are justified that do the law, but nobody can do the law. If they could do the law, Jesus wouldn't have to come. He wouldn't have had to die. We were weak in the flesh, therefore we couldn't do it, but God did it by sending his only son. You have to completely keep the law to be justified. But James tells us if you sin at one point in your keeping of it at all during your whole life, then you're guilty of breaking it all. Totally guilty with one offense. What the People magazine reader would call the, the most tiny little minute offense. Doesn't matter. You've broken it. You're guilty. You fall short of God's glory. And blood needs to cover your sin. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. This legal declaration by which an individual is proclaimed innocent or righteous in God's sight. Just because you go to the synagogue and hear the law, or just because you were raised in Sunday school and have the Ten Commandments memorized, doesn't mean you are justified before God. Again, chapter 3, verse 20, by the deeds of the flesh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's the doers of the word, not the hearers only, James tells us. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things written in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So, remember, you've got with the law versus without the law. You've got being a hearer of the law versus being a doer of the law. Now you have this conscience, which is what the Gentiles have, the conscience versus the written law here. Verse 15 says, who show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. 
This written on the heart law versus the written on the tablets of stone law. And Paul basically is saying, you know, all are guilty. All are guilty. The Gentiles are guilty because they have the law written on their heart. They have this natural law. It's less than God's biblical revelation, but it is revelation nonetheless. The framers of our Constitution spoke about this innate awareness that we have of what is right and wrong. God's written his law upon our heart. Plutarch, who was a Roman philosopher, was asked, hey, who is supposed to govern the governor? And he said, the law. But not the law written on papyrus scrolls or wooden tablets, but his own reason within the soul, which perpetually dwells with him and guards him and never leads his soul void of leadership. You know, the the Gentiles... The Gentiles who, you know, are out there in the farthest of far, the highest of heights, the deepest of deep of places, have this law of the Lord written in their heart. Have this moral law. That's why cultures have various laws. It's because the Lord has created them. It all points to this creator. It points to being made in the image of God. And although that image has been distorted and broken because of sin, we still have some marks of the creator. And those thoughts, they either accuse or excuse. Now, that person out in the the farthest of far, in the deepest of deep, they will not be judged by what they don't know, but what they do know. And that is enough to condemn them. The Jew who has God's revelation given specifically and written form so that he can pack it around with him forever and he can meditate upon it, he's also condemned. He's condemned by his failure in righteousness. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secret things by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We see four things here pertaining to the judgment of God. First of all, we see the judgment of God. Then the secret things will be judged. Then it's by Christ Jesus. And finally, it's according to my gospel. There was a woman from Michigan who was on vacation at a hotel. And finally, after times of sunbathing up on the top of the roof and nobody being there, she decided it would be okay to do some nude sunbathing. So she goes to this secluded spot on the roof and thinking she won't get caught, immediately, you know, before she knew it, the assistant manager of the hotel was by her side and was imploring her to put some clothes on. And she said, why? What's the big deal? Come on, nobody will be out here. Nobody will see me. And he says, ma'am, it's because you're lying on the skylight to the hotel restaurant. See, what she thought was secret wasn't so secret to the rest of the hotel. God will judge the secret things. You know, human courts don't judge the secret things. That's because there are things to human courts that are secret. There's things that the judges of this world, the juries of this world don't know. But before God, there are no closed doors. Before God, there are no dark places. 
the secret things that are shameful and that are done in secret. They will be judged. But there's good news to that as well because there are many morally excellent things and honorable things that are done in the secret. And they will be judged as well. They will be rewarded as well. The judgment of God, the secret things being revealed, the books will be open, everything that is recorded will be read before the faces of heaven, every sinner will hear the story of his life published to everlasting shame, the good will ask for no concealment, and the evil will find no concealment. You know, when we think about this judgment of God, these truths should really startle us. They should really startle us. And gosh, with all the distractions of the world, when we hear these truths about the judgment of God, we just, we don't shudder. We don't shiver. And those of us that have been saved from the judgment of God, from his wrath, from his indignation, there's not even any thanksgiving. There's, there's just nothing. You know, today, just my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would just strike in a sensitivity, that he would take away the numbness and the callous hearts that we can have, and that we would see the reality of impending judgment. And the Christian who is saved from it would burst forth in thanksgiving and rejoicing and clapping and just, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for the future glory and honor and immortality and peace that Romans chapter 2 says you've given me. That's you, Lord. Thank you. And if you're in a place today where the judgment you'd receive is a judgment of wrath and it's a judgment of indignation, may you fear God because you should. May you tremble. May you sweat. May you weep. And may you see his kindness. And may his kindness lead you to repentance. The judgment of God will judge your secrets, the things that you don't think he knows about. He knows about it. In fact, he knows about it more than you know about it. He sees more clarity about it than you see clear, clearly about it. He knows it and he knows it well. Jesus Christ is the one who will be doing the judgment. The Savior anointed Jesus. He's the judge of all mankind. He's our redeemer and he's going to be the umpire. As Charles Spurgeon said, what a difference there will be then between the babe of Bethlehem's manger, hunted by Herod, carried down by night into Egypt for shelter, and the King of kings and Lord of lords before whom every knee must bow. What a difference between the weary man and the one full of woes. And he that should be... Uh, that shall then be grit and glory, sitting on a throne encircled with a rainbow. From the derision of men to the throne of the universal judgment, what an ascent. I'm unable to convey to you my own heart's sense of the contrast between the despised and rejected of men and the universally acknowledged Lord before whom Caesars and pontiffs shall bow into the dust. He who was judged at Pilate's bar shall summon all to his bar. 
He's going to be the judge that day. And to think of that contrast between the humble, suffering servant that we read of and that Isaiah chapter 53 prophesied of and the righteous judge of Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Man, you see Jesus' glory. But notice that the judgment of God, the secrets that will be judged, it will be judged by Jesus Christ. It will all be according to my gospel. Not that Paul was the author of the gospel or that Paul had some exclusive monopoly of the blessings of this gospel. But, you know, Paul so received it from the Lord that he regarded this huge responsibility, placing huge trust in the gospel. He could not disown the gospel even for a second. Standing before Caesar Nero, man, he stood boldly. With strength, knowing who had given him this gospel. He says, my gospel, like a soldier speaks of his colors or his unit badge or of his president or of his king. And he bears this banner of the gospel in victory and carries this truth royally to the death, the beheading of Paul in Rome. My gospel Do you have such a zeal over the gospel that you personalize it like that? You take ownership of it? Is that you? (laughs) This is mine. You know, a couple months ago, my ignition in my truck busted all out, and I had to get a power drill and drill out the whole locking cylinder in my truck, and just hours and hours of drilling. And as I'm out in my driveway drilling and sledgehammering, just, ah, you know, the Mormons came by. And, you know, my wife, she grew up with Mormon friends, just has a heart of compassion for the lost, and she's out just talking to them, and I didn't even, I'm not even looking. You know, pastor, you know. Then Friday, you know, when we first moved into our house in December, Russell thought it'd be a great idea to put toilet paper down the bathroom drain, sink drain. And so for 10 months, this drain has very slowly had a trickle of water going through. Someday I'll get to that, you know. So finally, Friday, I'm down under the sink, and I'm finally getting the pee pipe or whatever you call it, and pee plug, or I don't know what you call it, but getting all this thing out and taking it to the kitchen sink and just, what do you know, knock at the door. Ding dong. And this time I was kind of listening, and I was, you know, Mormons, by the way. This time I'm kind of listening, and, you know, Lindsay goes, and, oh, yeah, just as I'm just cleaning out hair that did not come from our family (laughs) and toilet paper that I don't even think came from our family. I just started getting angry because these Mormons showed up and they're just like, Hey, what's up? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Just Mormons, just missionaries, you know, cruising the neighborhood. Yeah. We'll be back, you know? And, and Lindsay's like, Oh yeah, just, you know, we're not interested and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, my gospel. And I just started getting mad as I'm like, they're, they're packing a false gospel. That Galatians says, even if an angel brought it to your doorstep, you would have just, it's accursed. And I didn't know I was in this war of like, should I just go to the door and just, <laughs> send those little bike helmets packing down the street, you know. Or, you know, just the love of like, I love you, but I hate this. And, you know, the door shut and Lindsay came in. It's like, they were here again. And 
just talked with them. And I didn't say anything. I'm just like, and she's like, are you mad at me? And I'm, no, I'm not mad at you. Why aren't you saying anything? I just want to curse them, you know. Well, go do it, you know. I don't think I had the right heart, but... But my friends Chris Cross and John Wang, you know, they'll actually follow him down the street, door to door, shouting to the other doors that are knocked on, these are a cult, don't listen to them, it's a false gospel. <laughs> I haven't done that yet either, so I want to be led by the Spirit. But Another comparison and contrast, we want to just finish the gospel, or finish the book today. Verse 17, we see this verses. We see the Jews are guilty, and we see the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 1 says the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2 says whoever you are, you're guilty. And chapter 2, verse 17 through 29, the Jews are guilty. Verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew, and rest on the law and make your boast in God. You see, the Jews have this boast in religion and outward appearance. So much could be just said of, of the Christian today that's been raised in the church or that attends functions regularly. We can so quickly default and move back into this boasting in religion and outward appearance. Our, co our confidence, like the Jews, could become that of our works and that of our heritage. Our heritage can go to our head. You know, the Jews had the tradition that Abraham dwelt at the gate of hell to keep any Jews out, regardless of their deeds. You know, John the Baptist put the, put the Pharisees in their plate, when, you know, when he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance after you repent, and don't even think to say to yourself, we are children of Abraham, our father. Because even now, he says that uh, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Your heritage isn't what makes you special. The Jewish philosophers would brim with this false confidence saying, even if a Jew was a sinner, unbelieving, disobedient, and rebellious towards God because he was circumcised, he would share in the eternal kingdom. Verse 18 says, you know of his will. You approve of the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You know, the, the Jews could boast in that they were caretakers of the scripture. They would read it, they would teach it, they would copy it. But they knew in their heart that they didn't obey it. They would instruct it, you know, catecheo is the word, where we get our word catechism, teaching by repetition. That was what the Jews did for fun. And yet, the Jew would miss heaven by 18 inches, that distance between their head and their heart. And for those of you that are young, those of you that are middle schoolers, high schoolers, beware. If you've grown up in the church, you will begin to develop that same thought in that same attitude that because you've been in the church and you've been to Sunday school and you know all the Bible answers and man if you go to a Christian school or a home school just those pressures towards finding your comfort and your your um, confidence in good behavior it becomes so much more strong 
But don't find it in your good behavior. Don't find it in the number of memory verses that you know. Find it in Jesus Christ and him alone and what he's done for you. Verse 20, 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And the answer is yes. You know, as a teacher, you should be learning what you teach. You should be teaching yourself. And that's a huge thing for me. I always want to learn it before I bring it. And yet the Jews, as they would learn it and teach it, they had all sorts of loopholes and intricate systems for themselves to get around the law that they taught. You know, and so literally in teaching that they shouldn't steal, they would steal. In teaching that they shouldn't commit adultery, they had these loopholes of ways they could commit adultery. The ways they could rob temples. You know, Jesus himself witnessed the robbing there in the temple. And so he overthrew the the tables and made the court of whips. We too can rob temples by robbing God in our tithes and offerings, Malachi says. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesied and indicted these guys, indicted the Jews to be under sin, to being poor witnesses because of their sin. Last week we talked about when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan confronted David on it. Nathan the prophet said, yes, you're forgiven, David. But then he said, however, because of this deed, you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child that's born to you this day will die. You know, the Jews were to be a light to all nations, but because of their sin and wicked hypocrisy, they were a joke among the Gentiles. In verses 25 through 29, we're going to go through it very quick. You have this circumcision versus uncircumcision. Circumcision is profitable indeed if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Again, the Jews said if a man was circumcised, he would be acceptable to God. One Jewish scholar said that our rabbis have said, no circumcised man will see hell. The Jews felt safe and secure because of the literal cutting away of the male reproductive organ. That's what made them feel safe. And Paul says it's ridiculous. In the same way that most Americans see themselves as Christians and see themselves as safe because they're Americans. Or because of their heritage. Or because of what's printed on their money. The Jews had mistaken a symbol for substance. And rituals for relationship. And we can do the same thing. Charles Hodge also said, whenever true Christianity declines, there's a tendency to place undue stress upon external rights. Our rights and our rituals will never produce righteousness. That's what Paul is getting out here. Righteousness is of that of the heart. Verse 26 says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keep the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, he even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, 
but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Again, this outward appearance, outward ritual versus inward appearance versus the heart. Remember, God looks at the heart of the matter. In dealing with circumcision, you know, circumcision was a symbol of the actual cutting away of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh that would leave us sensitive to God. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Let me ask you this. Have you had your heart circumcised? Have you had Jesus come in and cut away the flesh, the callous heart that you have had so that it could be exposed and be sensitive in relationship before him? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? I'm not asking what rituals you've performed. I'm not asking if you've been baptized because the same thing is applicable to baptism. Baptism is just a symbol. It doesn't produce righteousness in and of itself. I'm not asking you if you've taken communion. Again, a symbol. If nothing has happened in the heart, your baptism and your communion and your circumcision, it's all in vain. Have you had a heart change? And that's what Paul gets to here in, verse, or in chapter 2. You think you're... You can escape the judgment of God because of your heritage or because of your circumcision or because of your written codes. You need to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb and you need to have a heart change. And that's where we're going to close today as the worship team comes up. We're going to spend time in communion and before we partake, we're going to cast down the list of things that we feel make us right before the Lord, the things that we've done our heritage, our actions, our charity, our giving, our rituals, our judgment upon others. We're going to cast those things down. And, and I beg of you to cast those things down today. And put your trust in what Jesus has done. To let there be a work of the heart happen today. As we close in worship, to just ask Jesus to change your heart, to circumcise your heart, to cut away the flesh. You've been numb towards the conviction of his spirit upon you, towards sin. You've been numb at the thought of a coming judgment. You've been careless and fearless towards God. But today through faith, you can say, Lord, cut away the old man. Cut away the sin. Change my heart, Lord. Lord, do a work in my heart today that no filter, no rules, no abstinence could ever do. Change my heart, oh God. Wash me with your blood. As we take communion today, Lord, we don't count your blood as a common thing. We dare not 
tread upon it or trample it underfoot through continual sinning. But Lord, today we count your blood as a precious thing, as a precious gift. To think of your body, the body of God being broken upon Mount Calvary, Lord, it just breaks our heart. It shows us your kindness. And Lord God, we want to repent. We thank you for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was shed. And we worship and praise and thank you for the redemption that's found in Christ Jesus. Do a work of your spirit today, Lord, cutting away the flesh. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.